I'll say it again. Wow. I was sharing with some uh, folks uh, today as they were coming in that uh, today's my first day here. <laughs> and uh, missed last week, missed opening day here, but it is so exciting. I'm so excited to be here with you this morning and seeing you all here and hearing your voices without the fan. Right? Yeah, that is fantastic. So, but uh, so glad that you chose to join us on this beautiful fall day. We are continuing our series in the book of Malachi, and it's been a challenging book, uh, and it doesn't get any easier from here on out. And uh, in the book of Malachi, the prophet addresses the half hearted worship of God's people. Of, of both priest and king for that matter. And his message is a message or a call to repentance. It's a call to faithfulness. It's a call to God-honoring worship. And as I mentioned in week one, uh, the book is structured in such a way as that there are six uh, disputations or six arguments or speeches that are, are made and it's, it's very interesting because in week one, it was concerning God's love for Israel. And the second disputation had to deal with the unfaithfulness of the priests. Now, the spotlight shifts from the priests to the people. And in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, God rebukes the unfaithfulness of his people. Now, this disputation differs from all the other oracles in the book in that the the prophet doesn't follow the Socratic method that we talked about in week one. Actually, he launches out with three consecutive questions, and then he lays a charge at the feet of the people, namely their unfaithfulness. And what he does in the process is that he makes it clear, and I hope we'll see it this morning, is that our vertical relationship with God is inexorably linked to or tied to our horizontal relationship with one another, and especially with our spouses. And so when you look at this particular section of Scripture, what we're going to see is that Israel's unfaithfulness, the unfaithfulness of God's people is evidenced or revealed or exposed by their faithlessness to one another, to the precepts of God, and to their spouses. Now, I thought I'd like to maybe state that positively, so let me try. True faithfulness to God is expressed in our faithfulness to one another, to the precepts of God, and to our spouses. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to open up this amazing little book. And Father, we just ask that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit, you would be our, our teacher and our guide. The Lord, that we would be open to your conviction to your correction, that, Father, we would be quick to repent if we need to repent, and, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of your Son. We love you and ask that you would speak to us, that you might change us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This week I read um, a letter that was sent to Ann Landers. How many of you have ever read Ann letters to Ann Landers? Um, this one I, I thought was interesting and so uh, apropos. Uh, the letter wrote, Dear Ann Landers, if anyone has the slightest doubt that we are living in a totally different world today, I challenge them to browse through the stationery store and check out the card section. I did last week and found beautiful cards with the following messages. And here's a sampling. Best wishes to my dear mother and her husband. Holiday wishes to my former grandparents. I divorced your grandson, not you. Congratulations on a great divorce. Happy anniversary to my former in-laws who are still in my heart. Best wishes to my former husband on his birthday. Happy 4th of July to my live-in sweetheart. And this one here I really like. Congratulations on your marriage. This one's sure to work. Three times is the charm. And to remove all doubt, <laughs> to remove all doubt that we live in a different world today, I, I received this card on our 28th wedding anniversary. You're my loving, handsome husband. You, you guys can all smile and applaud at that. My true and trusted partner, a man who's strong and sensitive, genuine in giving. So far, so good, right? You're amazing in every way, and I am grateful every day to be your husband, share your life, and know your love. Did you, did you catch that? Okay, I just wanted to make sure we are, yeah, all right. So, well, needless to say, my wife didn't catch that the first time around. <laughs> And uh, it wasn't until she got home and she, she saw it and go, huh? <laughs> and I guess she thought I would get a kick out of it because she gave it to me anyway. <laughs> so, so I, mean, I mean, what more evidence do you need that our world has changed uh, considerably? And despite what many people think, marriage is not a man-made institution. It's not. It's not something that you, you can make it into whatever it is that you want to be. It is not a social construct. It is a divinely ordained institution whereby one man and one woman are joined together for life. That's, that's what marriage is. It's designed for his glory and for our good. And it is a creation ordinance. I don't know if you ever heard that before, but I know for a long time I really didn't understand what that meant. It's a creation ordinance, meaning it was something that God enacted and put in place at the very creation of humankind. It was, it was something that God did shortly after he created Adam and Eve and then brought the woman to the man and then commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. Before there was society, there was marriage. You see it? it, it, it there was marriage then comes the fruitful and multiply, so then you have family, and it's only after that that you have society. 
So marriage is not a social construct. It's not a man-made idea. And although marriage, when you look at Scripture, you, you will see it as a covenant relationship, it's not until we get to the book of Malachi that the word covenant is actually used to describe marriage. And so I think it's important for us to have a, an understanding of what covenant means. And I'm just going to give you a simple definition. It's, uh, it, it, there's a lot of good definitions that are out there, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. It is a formal, solemn, binding agreement or contract whereby two or more parties agree to do certain things or not do certain things. And you say, well, isn't that like a promise? Well, it is a promise, but it's more than a promise. A promise is something that can be easily broken. A covenant is not as easily broken because it's a binding agreement. And so this morning, what I want us to see is that Malachi's charge against the people is a charge of unfaithfulness to God, but it's seen in unfaithfulness in other aspects of their lives. And the very and I just realized I don't even have my clicker back there, so you're you're on for me. So the the very first thing I want us to see is that the people's unfaithfulness to God is revealed in their faithlessness to one another. It's revealed in their faithlessness to one another. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over there to chapter 2 of Malachi. It's the last book in the Old Testament. And let's take a look at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? The reference to one father could be a reference to Abraham, but I believe it's, it's a reference to God as evidenced by the second question um, that is given there. And the phrase one another could also be translated as brothers. Some of your translations may even say that. The New American Standard 95 there says, why do we deal treacherously against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Now, we're not told all the ways that they were unfaithful to one another, but we can guess, can't we? I mean, human nature hasn't changed from the beginning of our existence. I don't care how far back you go, it, it really doesn't change. And so, how might they have been unfaithful? They, they might have been unfaithful in, in their selfishness, and their self-absorption, in dishonesty, in anger, in theft, in hatred, and even murder. It might have been seen in their speech, lying to one another, slandering one another, gossiping, using filthy language. But the context reveals that one of the ways in which they were being unfaithful to one another, now this is interesting, to one another, is seen in their faithlessness to their wives. So the 
the writer, the Malachi, sees the people's unfaithfulness to their wives as being unfaithfulness to one another. And this unfaithfulness is described here as a profaning of the covenant God made with their fathers. Now, they were to be God's special people. They were God's special people. They were to be a conduit of his mercy and his grace so that ultimately all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But time and time again, they rebelled against God. And they were unfaithful to one another. And you have to ask the question, how are people going to see God when his people are unfaithful to one another? See, they're they're not going to believe what we say until they see us living what we say we believe. And Malachi is pointing out here to us that that the the characteristic that ought to uh, characterize our lives as Christ followers, as God's people, is our love for one another and unity within the body. And their unfaithfulness was really an indication that they truly didn't know him. You know, the Apostle John in his first Uh, epistle said something similar when he says, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's the point that Malachi is making. Our love for one another and our unity with one another are proofs that we belong to him. And it's what the world needs to see if they're going to believe what we have to say. Amen? Malachi is rebuking the people and reminding them of who they are. It's as if he's, he's saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget whose you are. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget who it was that called you. And why is that? It's because forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. When you begin to forget the goodness and the mercy and the love and the grace of God in your life, it is easy to stray. We've got to come back and remember who God is and all that he has done for us. The second way that the people's unfaithfulness to God is revealed is in their faithlessness to the precepts of God. Now, that's not a word we like to use or that we use very often, but basically it's God's teachings, his commands, his statutes, his word, his will for our life. Look at verse 11 says, Judah has been faithless and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. Um, anybody here have the NIV translation? Um, gosh, don't see any hands, a few hands, well, a couple of hands, Yeah. Um, I want to read verse 11 because it uses some different descriptions of what we just heard from the ESV. It says, Judah has broken faith. 
a detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. Now Malachi declares that Judah has acted treacherously. God's people, Israel, has committed a detestable act, an abomination. And in the Old Testament, a detestable act was worthy of death. So we're not talking about something very trivial here. This is very, very serious. So what was it that they did that was so bad? Well, this text tells us. They married foreign women who worshipped idols. Something that God had commanded them not to do. Back over in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons, or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. You see, in disobeying God's clear teaching, they profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, the word sanctuary is the Hebrew word kodesh. It literally means apartness, separateness, sacredness, holiness. So in disobeying God's precepts here, they are really holding God in contempt. They are violating the holiness of God and the distinctiveness and the separateness of his people. They treated God in his word with contempt. The sanctuary was profaned because they continued to come and offer their sacrifices and their offerings even though they were walking in disobedience. They may even have brought their foreign wives into the sanctuary as they feigned worship to him. I was thinking that things really haven't changed. We do the same thing today. I know a number of years ago, um, in a church that my wife and I were in, we had a church discipline issue where there was a, a man that was unfaithful to his wife. And rather than submitting to church discipline, rather than repenting, um, he left the church. And he left his wife. And sometime later, my wife and I were in another church worshiping, and in came the same individual, not with his wife, but with his new honey. And amazingly, I'm watching as he's lifting hands to God, singing praise to God, all the while when his hands weren't up raising God, they were all over her. And they were kissing in the worship service. And I thought to myself, how can this be? How can someone claim to be a Christ follower and re reject God's word 
desert the wife of your youth and then walk into a church service and pretend like nothing's wrong. But it happens all the time. Professing Christians often treat God with contempt by disobeying his word. If not in that area, maybe in other areas. Sometimes it's by entering into an intimate relationship with someone who's not a committed Christ follower. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now you guys know what a yoke is, right? You, you've seen the pictures of the farmer with the two oxen and this big wooden thing that ties them together. And the purpose of that is to keep them working together so that one doesn't pull this way and one doesn't pull this way and nothing happens. It, it keeps them bound to each other. And whichever way the one goes, the other has to go too. Now I realize that sometimes a person comes to faith in Christ uh, after they're married. But there are many who claim to know Jesus, who willingly, willingly choose to date and marry someone who is not a part of the family of God. And by the way, I've heard all the excuses. You know, I did youth ministry for 20 years. I've heard all the, you know, well, we're just dating. It's not like we're going to get married or anything. You know, just for the record, every marriage begins with a date. In, in most play parts of the world, anyway. How, how about, she, well, she goes to church. Uh, he's a Christian. He just doesn't go to church. How's that one? Or he said he would like to start coming to church. Yeah, I bet. I wonder why. Well, she's a really moral person. His parents are Christians. Good. His dad's the pastor. Hmm. And this one, this one's my favorite. But I can win him to Jesus. You know, we call that missionary dating, right? Young people, if you're here, you are. Unmarried people, beware of self-deception. Scripture says the heart is deceitful above all else. Decide in advance to honor God. Decide in advance to do what honors him, especially in your dating life. Learn from the nation of Israel. Learn from the many people around you, even here this morning, who would tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't compromise your faith. Don't disobey God. Um, I quoted... 2 Corinthians chapter 6 earlier. I want to read, it's not up on the screen, but I want to read that passage from the New Century Version because I think it's really good. Paul writes, you are not the same as those who do not believe. So do not join yourselves to them. Good and bad do not belong together. Light and darkness cannot share together. How can Christ and Belial, the devil, have any agreement? What can a believer have together with a non-believer? The temple of God cannot have any agreement with idols. And we are the temple of the living God. 
As God said, I will live with them and walk with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, sometimes in in talking with folks, especially young folks, uh, about dating and and about the importance of of marrying in the Lord, um, we can really focus on, on just the aspect of you need to marry a believer. You need to be in relationship with someone who shares your your faith, but we don't really explain why that's so important. I, I was reading in a commentary um, over the last couple of weeks, um, and, and one particular paragraph stood out to me that I think is very insightful and helpful, so I'm going to share it with you. Um, it says this, the problem with marrying someone who is an unbeliever isn't merely that they belong to a different religious organization or no organization. The problem with marrying an unbeliever is the different worldview through which they view all things. They perceive the world differently than a believer does. Christians have a certain system, a lens through which they view the world. An unbeliever does not look through that same lens. Christians have a framework based on Christ by which we love, give, and live. It shapes how we spend our time, our talents, and our investments. It molds the way we raise our kids. It shapes the way we participate in organizations. It shapes our discipline and our dedication. And to unite oneself in marriage with someone who has a contradictory worldview creates tremendous temptation to abandon the one true God for worldly, unbiblical pursuits. This was true for Israel, and it is still true for Christians today. It's a completely different worldview. And although at the beginning the emotions may be so overwhelming that you think you can conquer the world, but then reality sets in. And all these other things that you didn't think about, suddenly you have to think about. And it causes tension. And just like the oxen who are yoked together, one begins to pull this way. And you're stuck. And so it's so important that you're both moving in the same direction. God chose the nation of Israel from all the peoples of the earth, and he commanded them not to intermarry with the godless nations around them. But like I said before, they rebelled over and over again. And now Malachi pronounces judgment. Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now this is a a difficult verse to translate. Other translations don't uh, use the word descendants here. Um, The NIV 84 renders it this way. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, priest or or people, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. The 
the point here is, is that they, they, they couldn't just walk into the sanctuary and offer their offerings and expect God to accept it. God isn't going to turn a blind eye to their disobedience. They presumed upon God and thought they could get away with it. And, and, and they sought to soothe their conscience by doing these religious acts. And I, and I subscribe that we do the same thing. Somehow we, we the, 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 the understanding that we're spiritual beings remains even though we sin. Even though we may be walking away from the Lord, there is still that part of us that understands the, the truths that we've been taught and we learned. And, we, and so we're trying to hold on here and hold on here and, and, and to soothe our conscience by presuming upon God. Now, this may sound harsh, and I thought about this, and I have rewritten this several times because after looking at it, the first three or four times, I thought maybe I was being too harsh. But our churches are full of people who presume upon God. Every single Sunday in a worship service, there are people who are presuming upon God. That during the week, they are acting in a way that is unbecoming of a Christian. They may be faithless to their spouse. They may be engaged in unethical business practices, whatever. But then they come to church and they play the part of a devoted follower of Christ. Listen to me. God's judgment falls upon those who do such things. That's what Malachi is telling us here. If you claim to know Christ, if you're here this morning and you claim to know Christ, but you're living a double life, you need to repent. If you are even thinking of leaving your husband or your wife, you need to repent. And if you're dating somebody who doesn't know the Lord, you need to end it. You need to honor God. He comes first. We seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Trust me, being single is not the worst thing in the world. Ask anybody who's gone through a divorce. We'll tell you the same thing. God has given you time. If you're single, if you're unmarried, if... You desire to be married. I don't know where you are, but I, I know this, that if you're not yet married, then you've got time. You've got time to work on yourself. Stop looking for Mr. Right or Miss Right and start being Mr. Right and Miss Right. I think my son is probably tired of me. We just talked about this, this past week, but I have told him on numerous occasions, if, if you want a princess, you got to be a prince. You want a queen, you got to be a king. And of course, the reverse is true for the ladies. Think about it. If you spend your time working on you, 
becoming the person that God's created, working on so that you're the right person. Then in God's perfect timing, when he brings the right person for you together, you'll be ready for him. I think sometimes, sometimes God doesn't do that because he knows that we're a mess. And we would ruin it. And he loves the other person too much to give you to them. You'll save yourself a lot of heartache if you do this. Third thing, the people's unfaithfulness to God is revealed or exposed in their faithlessness to their wives. You say, well, Paul, haven't we already been talking about this? Not exactly. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So not only were the men of Israel marrying foreign pagan wives, in many cases they were divorcing their Jewish wives to do so. So before they could marry them, they had to divorce their wives. And then they would go to the temple like nothing is wrong, present their offerings before the Lord, and they expected God to accept it. So, so when he didn't, they wept and they groaned. They didn't understand, God, why? Why won't you accept our offerings? You see, this is what sin does to us. It blinds us. It deceives us. It desensitizes us to the things of God. God rejected them and their offerings because they acted treacherously and broke faith with their wives. Though they were their wives from their youth, though they were wives by covenant, they were faithless to them. And so what Malachi is now doing is he's connecting the covenant of marriage to the covenant that they made with him. And it's not surprising because throughout scripture, it's very clear that God likens marriage to the relationship he has with his people. Now, when you think about it, Ephesians 5, verse 23, 24, that, that ought to come to mind because in that passage, Paul tells us that marriage is just that. It's like the relationship of Christ and the church. And he tells husbands, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, you're to submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Now, if marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, then what's divorce a picture of? Have you ever stopped to think about it? The picture then would be of Jesus deserting, forsaking his church, or of the church deserting or abandoning Christ. That's unthinkable. 
Now, Malachi is not addressing what we would call uh, uh, divorce on biblical grounds, okay? Because there is scripture that talks about divorce. Uh, Jesus taught about it in the Gospels. We don't have time to go there this morning. He's addressing sinful divorce. He's speaking of marital unfaithfulness and the betrayal of one's marital vows and cruelty in the way that they treat their wives. See, as Christians, we're to work hard at our marriages. We're to keep our vows, no matter how difficult it may be. And let's face it, at times, it's difficult. I am difficult to live with. It's hard. But we made a covenant together. And we believe God will honor us as we seek to honor him. And we have been fortunate and blessed, I should say, I mean, to celebrate our 28th wedding anniversary just a few weeks ago. See, when you take your vows, you're not just taking your vows before other people. That's part of it. You're making your vows before God who holds you accountable and expects you to keep your vows. It's a covenant with God, with your spouse, with the entire community for that matter. And it, the success or failure of your marriage affects everybody. We don't often think about it, but that's true. I love what um, Alistair Begg said, and I wish I could do it with his Scottish accent. I can't. So, but just try to imagine he's saying this. Your getting married is not just your little deal. It's all our deal. It's everybody's deal. Because if you make a hash of it, it affects us. It affects our street. It affects our family. It affects our neighborhood. It affects our town. We don't live to ourselves and die to ourselves, and we don't get married to ourselves. See, that's not the way we view marriage these days. But that's what marriage is. Let's continue looking. Verse 15. Did not... Did he, God, not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. God made them one. And what does God want from their union? Godly offspring. You say, well, why is that? Because from the very beginning, God's primary vehicle for bringing blessing to all the nations of the earth has been the family. 
And it's no wonder that the family has been under attack. That marriage is being redefined. From the Garden of Eden to the present day, the family has been the primary way in which God accomplishes his purposes in the world. Now, the King James Version, the New American Standard, and the NIV and other translations render the first part of verse 16 in a familiar way to most of us. I hate divorce, says the Lord. Okay, that's not how the ESV is translated here. It's a difficult verse to translate. Um, the, the Christian standard version says this. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. So whether or not the, the text here is best rendered, I hate divorce, says the Lord, or as some of these other translations do, the point is the same. It's wrong. It does not please God. And I think you can make a strong case that God hates divorce, whether or not this text is translated, I hate divorce. He hates it from the standpoint that it's not his design for humankind. It's not his design for his creation. He hates it for the cruelty that it inflicts upon the spouse, upon the children, upon the community. That's why the second half of verse 15, he says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence or injustice or cruelty or wrongdoing, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You know, Malachi, he's the first one that says, do it. Guard your spirits. Watch your spirits. What? But then the Lord in verse 16 says it again. So it's repeated here twice. So what are we to, what are we to guard? Guard our spirits. Guard our hearts. What is it exactly that we're guarding ourselves from? Well, how about the deceitfulness of sin? How about all the many voices that are out there clamoring for our attention, telling us, it's okay, if it feels good, do it, it's okay, they'll understand, hey, this is 2021, or whatever else that might be said. Folks, you cannot be faithful to God if you're not faithful to your spouse. Don't kid yourself. In summary... Israel's unfaithfulness to God was revealed or exposed through their unfaithfulness to one another, the precepts of God, and unfaithfulness to their own spouses. True faithfulness to God is evidenced in our faithfulness to each other, in obeying the commands of God, and in how we treat our spouses. 
how we maintain the vows that we made with our marriage covenant. As we seek to to live faithfully, the best advice I can give you is look to Jesus. He was faithful to his father. He he was obedient to him. He, He left heaven. He came to earth to follow the the plan of redemption laid out by the Father. He was faithful to the church, the body of Christ, in that he laid down his life for us. And he is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his promises, including the promise that one day he's going to come back to take us home. See, he's our example. We, We don't look to other people is even, even great marriages, that's just wonderful, but we got to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. You know, the person who wrote to Ann Landers was right. We do live in a totally different world today. But we can show the world there's a better way to live. We can demonstrate what real faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness to God, faithfulness to one another, and faithfulness to our spouses. Let me give you one last tip. The next time you buy a greeting card, especially for your wife, make sure you read the inside twice. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us. And Lord, even as we have been talking about um, the faithlessness of your people in Malachi's day, Lord, it's still amazing that you would even bother to address it, that you would even bring it up to them and give them yet another chance to repent and to follow you wholeheartedly. What long-suffering, what everlasting love you have. And Lord, the same for us. I realize that there are people here this morning who have been touched by faithlessness, who have been faithless, and yet, Lord, your grace is greater still, and we just ask that you would do a deep work in us to make us more like Jesus, that from this day on, Lord, there's nothing we can do about decisions that we've made in the past, but we can, from this day forward, choose to be faithful. And we ask for your grace and your power to this end. In Jesus' name, amen.